There is a verse in the Bible that isn't as commonly used as the ones that we've already covered this month, but it is used often by some unscrupulous, quote-unquote, faith healers who try to convince you that God intends to heal you of all of your illnesses and sicknesses if you have enough faith. And the way that you usually show that you have enough faith is by putting money directly into their pocket before they leave. The verse is 1 Peter 2.24, specifically the last half of the verse. By his wounds you have been healed. Now people may interpret that verse to mean that people who are sick must lack faith in Christ. Because surely their suffering is their own fault. However, this weaponized interpretation may do incredible damage. Although God's capable of miraculous healings, ultimately, while on this earth, we all can expect physical suffering, eventually leading to death. The context of this passage indicates that the healing here is a reference to spiritual healing we received in Christ when we've forgiven of our sins, thanks to how he suffered for us on the cross. That's not a catch-all phrase guaranteeing Christians perfect health. Now, God can and does heal. Most of us know someone who suddenly was healed of something with no explanation as to why. Something got better, something went away, something that was growing that shouldn't be growing, shrunk. Something like that has happened to somebody in our lives. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he performed miraculous healings that glorified God and deepened faith. The Bible does encourage us to pray in earnest. And if the Spirit is moving you to pray for healing, whether for ourselves or for one of our neighbors, we should do so with fervor. Yet, while we pray, we must attend to a critical distinction. Although God can heal us, we must never assume that He must. Death is a consequence of the fall. It overtakes us all, and the most common reason for that is using illness as a vehicle. When Christ returns, no disease will blot God's creation, but for now, we wait and groan as our bodies wither. We may perceive our healing to be the greatest good, but God's wisdom surpasses even the most impressive reaches of our own understanding. We cannot bend His will to resemble our own. Now, time and again, the Bible depicts instances where God does not immediately eradicate suffering, but rather engages with it for good. A thorn was given me in the flesh, the Apostle Paul writes of his own physical affliction. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it would leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God responded to Paul's prayers for healing, not by curing him but rather by working through Paul's suffering to draw him nearer to his glory. In the most exquisite example, through his suffering and death, Christ redeems us from our sins and pours grace upon us. Today is the final message in a series I've called Straight Out of Context, where I take a Bible verse that we all hear being used frequently out of its context and show how when we put that verse back in context, it gives it a more complete meaning. 
But as has been the pattern, this verse that I just shared with you is just a prelude to today's message. Today I actually want to focus on a verse that I'm sure many of you have been expecting at some point in this series. And that verse is Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The hymn, of course, being Christ Jesus. Now, this is most often used out of context in the world of sports entertainment. Steph Curry wrote Phil 413 on his sneakers. Tim Tebow uh, wrote Phil 14 on his face stickers. The heartbreak kid Shawn Michaels returned to the WWE in the early 2000s, sporting Philippians 413 on his shirt. I think the most well-known is probably Evander Holyfield. Stepped into the ring in 1996 to face Mike Tyson, wearing a purple robe that had Philippians 4.13 written on the back. In fact, boxers having Philippians 4.13 written on their robe or their trunks has been a fairly common thing since then. The only difference is Holyfield won his matchup, and not all of them do. And what a sight it is to see when the camera that is hung over the ring slowly zooms in on a boxer who's been knocked out cold with Philippians 4.13 right across the top of his trunks. What a confusing message that must send to some people who truly think that that's what that verse means. God is in your corner, so you aren't supposed to lose, ever. It's like the idea of football teams who pray that they win the game. If two Christian teams go together and both parents on either side have signs that say Phil 413 on them, which team does God allow to win? He has to go back and tally up how many of them sinned that morning. Whoever has the lightest score, well, they get to. Bottom line is, the Bible verse is everywhere, from athletes to pastors. Everybody loves to quote this verse. Chances are that you have heard, read, or seen it written more than a few times, yet despite its popularity, few people actually know the real meaning and how it applies to their life. I can do all things through Christ is commonly interpreted to mean that you can fulfill any desire that you set your mind to. This famous verse is often distilled to simply a personal motivation to get through something. But when Paul wrote this verse, that's not what he had in mind. This interpretation of Philippians 4.13 sells it short. It misses the depth of what's actually being communicated. So before we look at what this verse means, let's start with what it doesn't mean. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Like I said, athletes use these words as motivation to win a game. Students use it to prep for a test. Job seekers use it as proof that they will get the job. And the sick hold on to it as a promise that they will be healed. Now, I'm not trying to say that God can't do those things. He certainly can. But this verse is not a promise that he will do exactly what we want. Philippians 4.13 is often used as a promise or a motivation that if we do our part, then God will give us what we're after. The problem is that's not true. God never promises all of our earthly problems will be fixed or taken away. doesn't matter how much you pray, believe, or quote the Bible, bad things will still happen. You'll lose the game, you'll flunk the test, you'll, your spouse will leave you, your kids will hate you, people will die, the job will fall through, you won't have enough money, life will happen. That's Tuesday. <laughs> That's Tuesday, he says. That's hilarious. 
This verse isn't a promise that things will go your way. In fact, it's kind of the opposite. It's hope in the midst of your struggles and trials. So let's take a look at the context and see what what that teaches us about Philippians 4.13. To understand it, we need to back up and look at just a couple verses before it. Philippians 4.10-12 says this, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret to facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So Paul is wrapping up his letter to the church of Philippi. He's wrapping up his thoughts. In many ways, he ends his letter in a similar message that he began it with. If you go back and read Philippians 1, you'll see these same concepts. Paul is telling the Philippian church that he has learned how to be content regardless of any of his circumstances. Whether he's hungry, whether he's well-fed, free or in prison, has much or has nothing, he's content not based on his circumstances, but rather on a person. Jesus. That's what he's trying to get across in this letter. That you can be at peace, have joy, and be content regardless of your circumstances. Now, if you have Jesus and nothing, then you have more than enough. Paul knows what he's talking about because he wrote these words from Rome while sitting in prison. He's in a bad spot. He can't rely on his own strength. And it's from this dark and dingy cell where he is likely hungry and has nothing that he writes these words. Philippians 4.13 I can do all things through him who strengthens me. These are not the words that Paul uses to hype himself up for the big game. Words to remind him that those... Sorry. These words are to remind him that though his circumstances might be bleak, God is still with him. And it's from these humble means that he can have the peace of God. The context of this passage tells us this. But because many just read this single verse, many have missed the real purpose of Paul's words. Paul isn't giving motivation to conquer, but rather encouragement to almost certain defeat that you can still have hope. It's in our own weakness when God's power is strongest. He's saying that God will get him through whatever God brings him to. Not what we can accomplish, whatever we want, whenever we want. But rather, that we can survive. Because we have hope that others don't. So here are three points I have for you on how this properly applies to our lives today. Point number one, this verse is not for winners, it's for losers. That's right calling you a loser right from the pulpit how do you feel paul did not pin these words from a place of victory he wrote them from prison from a worldly perspective he had nothing he was a loser his basic needs weren't even being met philippians 4 13 is not a war cry to go and conquer it's not motivation to achieve success professionally academically or athletically it's not written to challenge the strong to become even stronger rather it's written to encourage the weak And those that find themselves in difficult circumstances. The most common interpretations of this verse miss that important distinction. Philippians 4.13 is for those who are struggling. It's a reminder and encouragement that though life may be tough, God is with you. 
Point number two, this is a challenge to be content. I don't know about you, but I am not a very content person. I'm way more content than I used to be. But still not a day goes by when I'm not wishing for this or that to change in my life. And this verse challenges me in that. See, Paul, again, was content from a dark and damp prison cell with little food to eat because he had what matters most, and he knew it all the time. Philippians 4.13 is a challenge for us to put things in proper perspective. We think we might need all of these other things to be happy and content. But really, those are just things that we have to make us comfortable. Paul challenges us to view happiness through a different lens. All we really need is Jesus. This should be one of the primary applications for us today. Be content in Jesus alone. So that's a difficult question for us. Is Jesus enough for you? If tomorrow morning you woke up and your family was gone and your possessions were taken, your house was foreclosed, you found yourself on the street, penniless, broke, nothing, not knowing where you're going after this, what's happening the next day, the next hour, the next minute, where you'll be able to rest your head. Would Jesus be enough for you in that moment? Of course not. Not for any of us. Not then. Not at that moment. No. Not that very next day. No. But over time, would you start to realize that even with nothing, if you have Jesus, it's enough? I like to think that over time, maybe I'd get there. But I can't promise that. And I can't promise I wouldn't be in misery most of that time. But eventually, eventually God would reveal himself and show you that you still have hope, even in the darkest of times. Celebrate Recovery allowed me to meet quite a few people who were in the worst spot of their life. And to see some people who really the only thing they had left in this world was the hope that Jesus had brought them. The hope that they had found in Jesus to know that even if they aren't clean and even if they haven't gotten their life back together yet, that that day's coming. It's really hard to know what you would be like in the worst situation of your life, in the darkest days, until those days hit you. I hope, I hope that you cling enough to your faith in Jesus that it would not break you. But there are many of us, even as believers, who don't get to that point. And many of us don't even have to have everything fall apart in our lives to get to that hopeless point. And also many of us suffer in silence. How many of you in here watched Power Rangers when you were growing up? 
Yeah. I mean like the original old school Mighty Morphin Dinosaur Power Rangers. Remember the Green Ranger, the White Ranger? Tommy Oliver, that was his name, played by Jason David Frank. Jason David Frank is probably the most well-known of all the Power Rangers because he's been in several seasons of it throughout the years, first as a teenager and then like as a mentor to another group. and It was a big deal to him. And it was a big deal to a lot of us who grew up with him. He was one of our first heroes in my generation. He was also a believer, a pretty outgoing and outspoken one. He uh, was into mixed martial arts, UFC kind of fighting. He had his own clothing line called Jesus Didn't Tap, as in tap out, quit. He would go to conventions and uh, comic cons and things like that and, and meet all these fans all the time. And he was always happy, always wore a smile, always tried to bless everybody that he came into contact with. And he would spread the love of Jesus far and wide. And yet, a couple months ago, he took his own life. And it came out of nowhere. And nobody knew why. Nobody still knows why. Nobody saw it. One thing that Christian culture still struggles with is allowing people to admit when their hope is lost and they've lost their way. And we do it to ourselves. We put on a mask and we say everything's happy, everything's good, everything's fine. It's a self-preservation technique. Everybody does, not just the church. But There are some Christians that even when they have much, feel like they have nothing if they're not clinging to that hope. They're afraid to get help. They're afraid to ask for help or to go to therapy or to, to go to any kind of outlet where they can speak their, their true feelings, their true heart, because we don't want to appear weak in the faith. I don't know what his situation was, and I don't know what led to that. But I do know it happens way more often than we want to know about. And the only reason I know about his is because he was a public figure. But that's happening every day in our church. That's what Philippians 4.13 is written about. You're struggling you're in the worst positions of your life, remember, Jesus is always in your corner. Even when you don't feel connected to Him, if you have surrendered your life to Him, He's there for you. And that should inspire you to be open about your struggles. You don't have to put them on a billboard. But you should find somebody you can confide in and talk these things out. Finally, point number three. Philippians 4.13 is a reminder to keep our eyes on what is most important. 
we're easily distracted. Philippians 4.13 is a reminder to keep our eyes on Jesus. Now, it would be understandable if Paul were to complain about his current conditions. After all, he's in jail for preaching the word of God. It's kind of a bummer. No one would blame him if he complained a little bit. But instead of looking at his current conditions, Paul kept his eyes on Jesus, and that's what got him through. Paul understood that through Christ, he could do all things, even be content in a prison cell. This passage should challenge us to keep our eyes in the right place. When we get distracted and start focusing on all the problems around us, we lose sight of Jesus and forget that he's in control. But when we keep our eyes on him, we can get through whatever it is that's in front of us. The Philippians 4.13 meaning that we cannot forget is that we are in a complete need of Jesus. It's through him and him alone that we get our strength. When we lose sight of that and try to power through on our own, we will fail every time. And that's it. That's the true meaning of Philippians 4.13. But, since I am running a bit short, let me take a few moments of your time to wrap up this whole series with a a bonus verse. Matthew 18.20 says this, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. I'm willing to bet most of us in here have only heard this verse used in one way. God blesses us when we come together and pray. And while that is completely true, it implies that God is not among us when we're alone. Or maybe he just doesn't listen as well when we're not in a group I'm willing to bet that many of you would be surprised to learn that Jesus was actually borrowing language from an Old Testament passage, Deuteronomy 19, that says two or three witnesses must agree in order to bring a legally binding charge against someone. And in the verses leading up to this one, we see Jesus lay out the process of church discipline. This is where when there's conflict between a fellow believer, in this chapter it's laid out how to handle this. First, talk to them privately. Secondly, if they refuse to repent, grab two or three people that are trusted within the church and talk to them again. Thirdly, if they still refuse to repent, bring the issues to the church leaders. And finally, if still they are refusing to repent, it's time to remove them from the church with the hope that they will see the error in their way and return, loving them as we would love the lost. Jesus is giving incredibly practical advice here, showing us how things should run in the kingdom of God. But you don't even need to be a Christian to appreciate it. Anyone that works in any kind of organization could benefit from following this process in times of conflict. Just imagine how much healthier the church or any organization would be if we actually followed this process. There would be so many problems resolved in our churches, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our families, if we just follow this biblical command laid out in Matthew 18. And Matthew 18, 20 is telling us that when we follow this process, God is there because this is his approved method. Matthew 18, 20 is not about prayer and worship. It's not about Bible study. It's not about memorials and funerals and weddings. But we will continue to use this verse wrong Because it sounds right. 
And that's the real problem. In our world of instant gratification, we want instant inspiration. We find that in pulling verses out of context. Over at the U.S. Treasury, when they do training on how to identify counterfeit bills, you would think that the process would involve showing all the trainees every kind of counterfeit bill they've come across. And they would show you, all right, well, this one, you can see the text is wrong. This one, the shadows are off. This one has the wrong kind of paper. You can feel that. This one, Ben Franklin's nose, is way too big. But that's not what they do. Instead, they train them by having them fully examine real bills. They study every single detail of genuine money so that when they come across a counterfeit bill, they can simply look at it and know something's off here. Something's wrong. Now, they might not know exactly what it is at that moment, but they know the real thing so well that even the smallest corruption will make that bill stick out like a sore thumb. I told you in week one that we've started doing a verse of the day thing for our church app here. Verses of the day, no matter where you come across them, are not supposed to be holy horoscopes for your day. This is not God just speaking a blessing into your life today. They're supposed to encourage you to dig deeper into the Word. To give you a preview of what this chapter has to say in hopes that you will sit down for a few minutes that day and find out more. In that vein, this very moment, we have updated the way we're doing our verse of the day. And when you get it in the morning, there will be a little link at the bottom of the verse that says visit website, and it will take you to the full chapter where that verse is found. I encourage you to read through it. Don't read the verse of the day and assume that you know exactly what it's saying. Look it up. A good rule of thumb is called 2020 vision. Read the 20 verses before that verse and the 20 verses after. Within those 41 verses, you should be able to catch the full context. It'll give you a clearer picture of what Scripture is saying. For instance, let's do a quick run-through. John 14, 13-14, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This verse is not saying that God will heal you or give you everything you ask for. This is Jesus telling His disciples that even after He died, He'd provide for them. And the emphasis was on asking in my name. Jesus is saying he will answer their prayers. Once again, making it clear that he is the son of God. It's not Jesus telling us that he'll do for us by telling us the proper, I'm sorry, it's not telling us what he'll do for us. It's telling us the proper way to approach prayer in our walk with God, which is through him. 1 Corinthians 10.13 No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may, also, or that you may be able to endure it. This verse is not saying God won't ever give you more than you can handle. It's saying that you won't be tempted beyond your ability to withstand it because He will provide a way to escape it. 
This has nothing to do with the strength that you have and everything to do with God's ability to rescue you when you can't handle it. God will give you more than you can handle. All the time. But he will also provide with you an escape as he fights your battles for you. Proverbs 22.6 Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. This verse is a warning, not a promise. This is not saying that Christian children would make good decisions their entire life. So just make sure you get them over that salvation line and you're good to go. It's saying that if parents don't discipline their children in a wise way, then their kids are going to make foolish choices and continue to do so as they grow up. The discerning parent is aware of this and carefully considers how to guide the child to become self-aware and self-controlled so that he will learn to make wise decisions more often than not in his youth and continue to do so the rest of his life. This verse is not saying the child will not depart from the way he should go from righteousness. It's saying that the child will not depart from the training that the parents give to him. So parents train them right. Exodus 21, 23-25 But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. This one might be the most confusing. Because Jesus later says this in the New Testament in Matthew 5, 38-39 You have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him your other also. I'm willing to bet that you think that Jesus is changing the law of Moses from the Old Testament here. But no. He's not saying The law said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. He is saying, you have heard it said. He's doing exactly what I've been trying to do this month. He's telling the people, you've heard this scripture out of context. And understood it to mean that you can take vengeance upon your brother when he wrongs you. But that's not the case. The eye for an eye passage in uh, Exodus was a part of a larger context on how to handle cases brought before a judge. And while some cases certainly warranted a life for life, as in the death penalty, this was more about fair compensation as decided by a judge. It was never about vengeance or vigilantism or anything like that. Jesus takes it further by saying that you should not, it should not be our initial reaction to demand retribution from someone who wrongs us. But instead, we should show our strength in the Lord by being restrained. Frankly, I could have kept this series going for months and not run out of verses too often used out of context. To return to my analogy of the U.S. Treasury, are you studying the Word enough so that when a verse is being used incorrectly... It sticks out like a sore thumb. Too many Christians, myself included, tend to coast through their lives on surface-level Bible verses used to give them a warm, fuzzy feeling. And they give God a wink and a smile and avoid anything challenging to their faith. But the truth, the full, complete, contextual truth is simply found 
in a leather-bound book with onion-skin paper, or even in your Bible app, in whatever translation you prefer. It's never been easier to read the Bible, but it's never felt harder to find the time. A daily time to read the Bible is probably the most basic of all spiritual advice. In fact, you've probably heard it enough that your eyes started to glaze over as I started to say those words. Daily Bible time? And yet, it seems to be the hardest things for most of us to make a habit. Why is that? Why do we have to be reminded of it so much? One of the best pieces of advice I ever got about trying to make your daily quiet time a priority is make it an appointment. Set an alarm, put it on your Google Calendar, wake up 10 minutes earlier each day and devote those 10 minutes to God. Make an appointment that cannot be moved no matter what else is happening in your life. If your doctor wants to meet with you during that 10 minutes that you're supposed to spend with God, you say, I can't do it then, but I can do it 30 minutes later. Make it a priority. Do whatever you can to put more context back into your life and find so much more meaning to the words that you've heard echoed for years. And again, I will challenge you to pick up the read a Bible in a year plan in the front foyer. Find one or find one, you know, on your own. We're only a month into 2023. Okay. So you're not too far behind. Double up a few days here in February. You'll be caught up by the end of the month. However you want to do it for however long, make this year the year that you commit to getting into your word every day. Open that Bible every day.